Morning, Bethel. So if you can keep your Bible there um, and turn to Romans 14, that's going to be our passage for this morning, Romans 14 and 15. And you can find it on page 948 if you're using the Pew Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the pew in front of you and use that. Um, So we are in the middle of a series called Gospel Culture. Um, Chris alluded to it as he was leading us um, in worship, uh, that the creed of the gospel, the doctrine of the gospel, ought to shape who we are and ought to shape our relationships and our communal dynamics here as a church family. Uh, So certainly our relationships should not create dissonance. The way that we interact with each other should not create dissonance with what we believe. We shouldn't unsay with our actions or our attitudes what we've said with our words, right? So um, this is, I think, the fourth of um, six or seven messages in this series. And like I said, we're going to focus on Romans 14 and 15 this morning. Um, There is so much in here, and I'm going to try to hit the highlights. Um, We may have a little bit shorter gospel community uh, discussion time at the end, but but I think that's okay because we do have community groups uh, this afternoon. Most of you do, um, so you can continue the conversation there as well. But this is such an important passage, has so much to say to us, I think. So um, let's dive in. So I'm going to start with a couple hypothetical conversation comments. Um, I don't know if any of these have ever floated through your head or floated through your kitchen. Um, I'll leave that up to you to, to, to uh, decide. All right. I can't believe they have their kids in public school. It's like throwing your kids to the wolves. No wonder there are so many kids who rebel and leave the church when they leave the home. I don't get this whole Christian school thing. How can they justify spending all that money when there are decent schools available for free. It ultimately matters how you parent them at home anyway. Did you notice that so-and-so had a drink at the wedding? I don't understand how he can do that in such a public venue. Doesn't he ever think of how it could be a stumbling block to others? I don't get these fundamentalists who still hang on to teetotalism, prohibition, if you don't know what that term is, Um, Like, no alcohol. Haven't we gotten past the days of no card playing, no movies, no dancing, and women wearing only dresses? Did you see so-and-so as a tattoo? What idiot would ever want a tattoo? I don't understand it. It's so stupid. I mean, don't they ever think about how it's going to look when they're 70? And what a waste of money. Okay, we could go on and on and on. We'll stop right there, but you can see how things like these can have serious bearing on whether we have a gospel culture in our church or whether we are overrun by a variety of subcultures. Different people this morning are going to need to hear different things. And Paul addresses different people with different things in Romans 14 and 15. But one thing is for sure is that this passage today has something to say to all of us. Okay, So we all have opinions on what this text calls opinions or disputable matters. 
And we often want others to come our way to share our opinions. So how do you disagree on things like these as Christians and cultivate at the same time genuine, not fake, but genuine unity and harmony? How do we do that? There is so much truth and wisdom and grace in our passage for these kinds of issues. So you know what? You might get your toes stepped on this morning. You may also feel affirmed in your position on this or that matter. And I'm guessing that if we're honest, if we really kind of think through life and different issues, we may all feel a little of both. But can I just encourage us all to listen humbly, listen for you, and I mean that individually, listen for you, not for someone else in the room or someone else that you wish was here. Okay, what does God have to say to me? So this is such an important passage if each of us is going to do our part to cultivate and to protect a gospel culture here at Bethel, a place where clear doctrine, the clear doctrine of the gospel that we treasure, creates relationships and an atmosphere that adorns the gospel and doesn't create dissonance with the gospel we profess. So if the truth of the gospel is like music to your soul, and I hope it is, I hope you love singing the songs that we just sang because they're songs about the gospel, then church relational dynamics should not be nails on the chalkboard. They ought to be one of the primary ways that we actually hear the music of the gospel. And just like any band or music group, We usually have to practice in order for that to happen, right? For the harmony and the sounds to be beautiful for us to work together. So, yeah, it can be beautiful. Sometimes it's going to be, but we can work at it so that it is beautiful. So the question that this text answers is how do we disagree, at least on certain matters, like Christians? And the answer, one way to summarize the answer would be we need main thing unity. Keeping the main thing, the main thing is the main thing. Have you ever heard that? Keeping the main thing, the main thing is the main thing. So let's read our passage and then we'll dive in. Romans 14, 1 to 15, 7. And then I will pray really briefly and we'll we'll dive right in, okay? So let's get familiar with this ground we're going to cover. Paul writes after he's written all this awesome doctrine, the greatest letter ever written, many people say, Book of Romans, Letter to the Romans, Church in Rome. Here he gets to some very specific application, and he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former times was written for our, or former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is God's word. Let's pray briefly. Oh, Father, there is so much here and you know what we need. And I pray that you would please guide our time here and by your spirit would you impress the truths that we need, each of us individually, press them in and shape each of us individually so that our church family dynamics, our relationships, our church culture is shaped and governed and guarded so as to reflect clearly the grace and the peace and the love and the kindness and the welcome that you have given to us through Christ. So we need your help. I need your help. And we thank you that we can come confidently and ask for that help and expect to receive it. Again, because of Jesus. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so first off, we need to start with some definitions 
Um, there should be some slides here, but you also have a little outline in your bulletin. It's a lot more detailed outline than usual because of this text and because of the issues that we're going to be covering here. So um, you got to track, you got to pay attention and, and follow along or you're going to miss the flow of things here because these definitions, for instance, are utterly vital to getting what Paul is saying and what he's not saying as we go along. So first, first question, what are these opinions or disputable matters that he's talking about in verse 1? As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. What opinions? Um, the message by Eugene Peterson, kind of a paraphrase of, of the, the Bible, uh, says this, welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. Okay? Does that mean on every opinion? Like, if someone in my community group is of the opinion that gay marriage is okay, as long as it's monogamous, does this apply? Or is it okay to have sex out of marriage if that's your opinion? Should we just, does, this, does that apply? Or cheating on your taxes? Or if someone says that there's no hell, is, is this the command for how I should respond? Just welcome him and don't quibble over opinions? No. <laughs> So NIV has a good translation here. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. I like that translation. I think that's maybe the most helpful one I've seen. So theologians have long spoken of levels of importance when it comes to categorizing doctrine. Okay? Some have used the language of one, first level, absolutes, second level, convictions, third level, opinions. It's like this the word here in ESV, opinions. Some have used the language of essential doctrines, important doctrines, non-essential. Okay. So the point is that no doctrine is unimportant. <laughs> right? All doctrine is important, but all biblical doctrine is not equally important. So we're going to use the language of first, second, and third level matters or doctrines, okay? So first level would be something like the doctrine of the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Christ, the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, justification by faith alone. Uh, faith alone. If you deny those things, you are outside the faith. You are embracing heresy. Second level doctrine would be like baptism, okay? This is not, un this is not unimportant, but we don't deny that folks down at faith, prez, are genuine believers, right? They believe the gospel. We differ on baptism. We love them even though they, you know, get their babies wet, okay? But it can be pretty difficult to formally embrace both options in the same church, okay? Second level. Church government can be in this category. There's others. Okay, third level these are these disputable matters, matters of opinion. So here's a brief list. I'm going to read through this really quick, not because I'm trying to have you like, uh, like but just so that you can kind of see how it's, it's way bigger than just alcohol. <laughs> okay, it's typically where we go with this one, right? And we will talk about that a little bit. But family planning views, abortifacients aside, is birth control morally permissible? Is it okay to wait to have kids? How many children should you have? Is it okay to get fixed? Baby sleep schedule. Should you put them on a strict schedule? Should you teach them to be flexible with your schedule? How to discipline your child? 
What you, what you allow your kids to watch and when? How much screen time you allowed your kids? Is it okay to play video games? Which ones? How much per day, per week? Is it okay to feed your kids sugar cereal? How about schooling choices? Public versus private versus private Christian versus homeschool? When is it okay to start dating or should it be courting? If you're dating, is it okay to kiss before you're married, before you're engaged? What kind of or how much physical contact is okay? Celebrating certain holidays, is it okay to go trick-or-treating? Is it okay to have a Christmas tree in your house? Can you go do egg hunts at Easter? What about tattoos and body piercings and hairstyles? Is it okay to, to eat highly processed foods? Is it okay to be an omnivore? Or is it better to be a vegetarian or a vegan? Is it okay to drink sugary drinks? Is it okay to eat fast food? Is it okay to eat lunch at a place called El Diablo? The devil. Okay, is it okay to listen to secular music? What kinds of TV and movies are okay to watch and, and what aren't? Is it okay to read Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Homeopathic and Eastern medicine versus Western medicine. Vaccinations, anti-vaccination. Is it okay to, to smoke a cigar or a pipe? Is it okay to drink alcohol in moderation? Political views, capital punishment, serving in the military. Is it okay to watch MMA? If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Boxing. Is it okay to play cards? Is it, what kind of dancing is acceptable? Is it okay to cut the grass on Sunday? Work for pay on Sunday? Play sports on Sunday? Certain financial decisions? How much people spend on vacations? Is it okay to say shoot, darn, or dang it? Or other euphemisms? How about modesty? How about how people dress on Sunday to church? What kind of music we should have in the church? There are some examples of disputable matters. And you can see how they pose some serious challenges to unity and harmony in the church. And it's not that these issues are unimportant. There's a lot of important issues I mentioned there. I'm not making light of them. And most of you probably have well-formed opinions on just about all those. And so do I. But can you also see how important it is to distinguish those matters from first and second level issues. Think about this. The principles that we're going to find in Romans 14 15 that guide disputable matters do not necessarily apply to first and second order issues, although these issues can become first and second order issues, you know? Like, if you start, like, it's fine if you want to handle the Sabbath that way, if you want to handle food, kosher laws that way, Paul says in this passage, but in Galatia, if you say it's Jesus plus these things, I'm going to start throwing out anathemas. Boom, it's moved up to a first level issue. Do you see? So, but again, when we read Romans 14 15, we don't realize what he's talking about, what he's addressing. We might apply Romans 14 and 15 stuff to levels one and two and really get messed up, okay? If you apply the proper posture on first-level issues to third-level issues, what would end up happening? You'd end up with rigid, stifling uniformity you know, with all these tertiary things. And, and maybe you end up with like a police state-like atmosphere in the church. Better not step out of line. And freedom and flexibility is lost. And things start to get rigid and the air gets stifling, right? But if you apply proper third-level issue dynamics to first-level issues or to sin issues, you could compromise and the doctrinal fidelity of the church could slide into the abyss of relativism. That's well, just a matter of opinion. You see? All right, so hugely important to understand what we're talking about here. Next question, who are the weak and the strong? 
Okay, first, the weak. Look at 14.1. We'll just notice where the weak are mentioned in, these, in this chapter and a half. 14.1, as for the one who is weak in faith. Verse 2, one who believes he may eat anything, that's the strong, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse 5, one person esteems one, be- one day is better than another. That's the weak person, while another esteems all days alike. It's the strong person. 15.1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So what's going on here? Who are the weak? This is really important. We've got to know who we're talking about, what category we might be in, or the person we're dealing with might be in. So first off, we're not talking about someone. This is really important, folks. This has been really helpful for me. I think this is really important for all of us to pay attention because so much church culture and dynamics can get kind of distorted because we're not careful with this text. We're actually not talking about someone who's morally weak. This is religious weakness. I mean, it's it's hard to pick the right labels, words here, but you'll understand what I mean in a second if you're not quite clear yet. This is religious weakness that's mainly in view here, not moral weakness. So a person whose conscience won't let them freely do something that is not inherently wrong. I'll say it again. A a weak person is a person whose conscience won't let them freely do something that is not inherently wrong. They're not free to. They're bound, even though they should have the freedom to do that thing. Okay? So the most likely explanation of what's actually going on here is in Rome you have Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were dispersed all over the place. So the church at Rome, you have Gentiles, Jews, together. And some of these Jews were weak. And most of the Gentiles are strong, at least in this sense, in this regard. And it's threatening their unity. So Paul writes to help them, to address this. So these are Jews living in Gentile territory. They have Old Testament food laws, ceremonial clean laws, kind of burned on their conscience. You can get this. You can imagine the situation. And do you know that in Gentile Roman-like cities like Rome, um, the meat in that world, in cities like Rome, was oftentimes sacrificed in pagan temples before it was sold in the marketplace. So there was a high likelihood that it was not kosher. And even wine could have been associated with a pagan libation offering, a drink offering. So the scrupulous Jew might avoid all wine and meat out of, because he lives in Rome out of concern that he not defile himself. Just like Daniel. Okay? Daniel didn't eat the king's meat or wine precisely for that reason. So it's not that these people are saying in order to be saved you have to Believe in Jesus and keep kosher. Read Galatians for how Paul would respond to that. (laughs) This is just, they have this weak conscience because of their religious background. Get it? So, just think of Peter in Acts 10. Familiar with this? Where Acts 10, the Lord wanted him to go and speak to Cornelius, this Gentile military guy. And because God was going to save all these Gentiles. And so he has this vision, rise, Peter, kill and eat all these unclean animals. He's like, I've never eaten anything unclean. 
Jesus, like the risen Christ in a vision, had to say it to Peter, Peter, I, do it. No, Lord, do it. No, Lord, do it. Like he had to be convinced because of how deeply impressed these scruples or qualms were in his conscience. So Peter in Acts 10 was weak in faith. This doesn't necessarily mean that he was weak in his faith in Christ across the board. He had already been beaten, like boldly preached, been beaten, thrown in prison, gotten out and preached again. That's pretty strong faith, isn't it? <laughs> Do you see what, what's going on here as far as weakness can be? We can, we can both be weak in one area and strong in another. So, um, one commentator writes, the disputable matters that concern us today almost never exactly parallel what Paul addresses in this passage, but the principles in this passage directly apply to our time. So we're going to focus on those principles, but there's really very few one-to-one -one correlation scenarios in our day. Maybe the closest you could get is if you had a Muslim who became a believer, is that person, is that Muslim going to read Mark 7 where Jesus said, don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart but into his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark gives the little editorial comment, thus he declared all, all foods clean. Is that Muslim going to just go right out and order bacon with their eggs? No. Is that because he has a moral weakness for bacon? I'm just so tempted. No, it's probably, it probably turns his stomach. It's a religious conscience weakness that's at issue. So that Muslim would be free to eat pork before God, sure. But his fellow believers, imagine if he moved to the U.S. and he, his fellow believers should be sensitive to his weakness. Or imagine a Hindu becomes a Christian. Can he eat beef? Sure. But the church better be sensitive. So this is not a one-to-one -one with moral weakness in the sense that it's someone who's easily tempted to sin or, or to overindulge. There's a big difference. You see that difference? So we often think of alcohol when we get to this passage. And the weaker brother is the person who may ha have alcohol abuse in his or her own background or in his family background. And so he's morally weak, easily tempted to abuse alcohol. So some Christians conclude we shouldn't drink in order to not cause this brother or sister to stumble. That kind of weakness is not what's in view here. That's not to say we shouldn't be sensitive to that person. That's almost like just a simple reflex of love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> okay? So there are principles, I think, that apply to that scenario with alcohol, but it don't, don't think it's a one-to-one. -one. So as we seek to apply Understand and apply Romans 14, 15. There's a difference between disputable matters and weak, strong conscience issues. I, I said that too quickly. This passage talks about opinions, disputable matters, and it talks about weak, strong conscience issues. We don't have a lot of one-to-one -one weak, strong conscience issues today like this passage, but we have lots of disputable matters issues. <laughs> so the Principles of this passage apply to our disputable matters. That big, long list I read really fast. Everybody tracking? Okay. So we're, that's what we're going to be applying the principles to, is things like what's on that list. So otherwise, one, one more quick thing here, and then we'll keep plugging. If you don't 
make that distinction, you might end up thinking that I'm saying that getting a tattoo is for the strong and not getting one or not wanting one is for the weak. No, no, no. I'm just saying tattoos are in the disputable matters category. (laughs) So the principles in this passage apply to that. Okay? Third level issues. So it's fairly obvious who the strong are in this passage, um, but I want to make a a quick comment on who the strong are not. One quick example, you can apply it further than this. The strong does not refer to those who aren't bothered by watching sexually charged nudity in movies. It's just a for instance. I just want to make this clear. That's actually the result of an insensitive conscience, not a strong conscience. Okay? So... We just have to be clear on what strong and weak are. To be strong are those who are able to receive and enjoy all that God has called good without qualms or pangs of conscience. Okay? So, point number three. And we will go through point number three. um, Not too fast, not too slow. Point four is actually going to go fairly fast because we've kind of touched on those things in point three. If you're looking at the outline, that'll make sense, all right? So here we go. What do we do when we disagree on these third-level issues? Very helpful to note what Paul doesn't say in this passage. I read the whole thing. You got the tone of it. Paul could have said to the weak in faith, grow up. Get over it. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. I had to. And you know what? Some of us can tend to talk that way about those who disagree with us. We need to learn from Paul, not just the content, but the tone and the manner. Listen, this is an excellent summary by Andy Nassali and J.D. Crowley. I actually referenced this book about a month or so ago when a message on conscience. And there's a chapter in here called How Should... You relate to fellow Christians when your consciences disagree. That is gold. So this whole book is great, but chapter 5, worth the price of the book, okay? So um, quick quote, well, it's a, a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it's, it's worthwhile. Excellent summary of what, what, what is going on here. Paul was an apostle, so he could have easily solved this specific controversy in the church at Rome with a blanket command like, if you have a weak conscience, you must mature and start eating meat. Enjoy what God gives you to enjoy. After all, that was Paul's own position. But this solution would have ignored the danger of compelling Christians to sin against their conscience. Even a misinformed conscience. Mature Christians should help other Christians train their consciences, but no one should force others to change their conscience on third-level issues. Or Paul could have given the opposite command. If you have a strong conscience, you must stop eating meat entirely since exercising your freedom might affect those with a weak conscience. Many conservative churches today land here, but this solution denies believers their freedom to enjoy God's good bounty. It doesn't do any good to be stricter than God. Rather than lay down a law, Paul appealed to love. His concern was unity, and ours should be too. Doug Moo puts it well. One of the most important points in Romans 14 is something that Paul does not say, that the weak in faith must change their view. He doesn't say that. 
He makes clear that he does not agree with them, and by labeling them weak, he implies also that they have room to grow on these matters, but he does not tell them to change their mind. He does not berate them for being immature. He does not tell them to get with the program, yet this is usually our first reaction to someone who differs with us. We want to change their minds to convince them we are right. Paul would undoubtedly support the church's efforts to educate its members as fully as possible about the gospel and its implications, but he is wise enough to know that there is a time and a place for such efforts. All of us have our traditions, and they are not easy to give up. As long as they are not contrary to the gospel and hindering the work of the church, we should learn to tolerate these differences. So what did Paul say? What does God want us to hear this morning in relation to disputable matters and how we handle them in the church? First, welcome. Don't judge or despise. Look at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Sometimes we go there just to pick a fight. And Paul says, no, welcome, not to pick a fight, not to fix them, not to set them straight. And also, welcome, don't just put up with one another. Don't just tolerate one another. Don't be nice to their face and then roll your eyes when you leave. Don't avoid them and talk about them behind their back in the privacy of your own home. Welcome one another despite your differences on disputable matters. Verse 3, let not the one who, abstain, who, who eats despise. I mean, are you, are you looking in? <laughs> I've despised. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment. If you're the stricter one, oftentimes you <laughs> kind of tisk tisk and pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. So don't despise one who is more strict or fastidious than you. Don't judge the one who is more lenient than you on matters of, in, of disputable matters. Don't bar the door to harmony and unity over these things. Welcome one another. Open the door wide. Because God, why? Because God has welcomed you. This is our gospel culture welcome is based on God's gospel hospitality. And man, were we annoying and ugly and not lovable when God opened the door wide. We are a motley crew. <laughs> and he just opens the door wide to all of us. Isn't that great? So there are tons of things that could have gotten in the way of God welcoming us. I mean, our sin, primarily. He's holy, we're not. He's loving, we're not. We're selfish. He's perfect, we're not. None of that got in the way. None of it stopped him from being loving and welcoming us. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You're not the judge. I'm not the judge. God is. Again, this is undisputable matters. If we're dealing with sin, sometimes we have, have to deal with things differently. If we're dealing with first levels, even sometimes second level things, we have to deal with it. But third level, verse 4, both despising and judging are attempts at taking God's place. You're not their master. 
I'm not their master. God is. And God has welcomed this brother or sister. For them, listen, this is Romans doctrine that ought to shape the culture. For them, there is therefore now no condemnation because they are in Christ Jesus. They've been justified by faith in Jesus. They have peace with God by the blood of Jesus. If God is for them, what in the world do we have being against them? What right? Who do we think we are? Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for this brother or sister. So once again, gospel doctrine has serious implications for gospel culture. So what do we do when we disagree? We welcome one another as God has welcomed us. We don't despise one another for our third-level differences. We don't judge one another for our third-level differences. Secondly, we focus on living for the Lord. Look at verses 5 to 9. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Do you see how that would be just total crazy talk if we're dealing with first-level issues? It's third-level issues. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. Can you keep the Passover can you do these festivals to the Lord? Absolutely. If you, if you try to make them necessary to salvation, Paul's got a big problem. If you don't want to just be kind of culturally a Jew, go for it. That's great. Do it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eat not, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So do you see how Paul articulates this? This is actually interesting. We could say more about this, but did you notice that he states it more like description than like command? It's interesting. The one who observes does it for this reason. The one who eats, eats it for this reason. The one who abstains does it for this reason. Why does he say it that way? Why doesn't he say, you who are going to abstain, do it for this reason? I think the reason is because he's kind of like saying, or he's trying to say something like, give others the benefit of the doubt. This is why they're in a different place, and they can do it to the glory of God. They can do it in God's honor. So don't make a big deal out of it. We all need to honor the Lord in everything. We're not our own. We belong to another. So you know what? Be gracious and flexible with others and be more concerned about and suspicious of your own heart. Okay, so what do we do when we disagree? Welcome one another. Remember that we're not anyone's Lord or master. God is instead, next one, C, resolve not to be a stumbling block. Verse 13. Skip down to verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide, resolve, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Don't flaunt, don't parade your freedom. Verse 14, I know, Paul says, he puts himself in the strong category. I know and persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing in itself is unclean, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. I don't want him to violate his conscience. Mark Dever said this, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. 
for a person. Okay? Because you can imagine, you understand, if you influence and push someone who has a weak conscience and a sensitivity there to violate their conscience, do you know how dangerous that pathway is? Okay, this is a disputable matter, but if they, if they harden their conscience, if they dull and don't listen to their conscience in this category, it could become a slippery slope that's really dangerous. Don't do that. Don't influence anybody in that direction. Resolve, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So don't put a stumbling block in their way. Don't hinder their walk. Instead, walk with them in love. Love is more important than our liberty. Exercising our liberty. If we can't lay aside our liberty in order to, to love a brother or sister in a particular instance, then our liberty is too important. And not just lay it aside kind of begrudgingly, but do so gladly without judging or despising them for it. This whole passage hangs together. And then there's this interesting comment. Look at verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. What, what's that doing in there? Does it seem like it comes out of nowhere? Here's the point. Don't give the weak a reason to speak evil of what God has declared good. Let's take alcohol as an example here. So maybe 30, 40 years ago in the evangelical church, you had a lot of people that abstained. And sometimes for legalistic reasons. Sometimes not. Sometimes for good reasons loving neighbor and being concerned about family members and how it would affect them or their own temptation or whatever. But you know what? I think our culture is in danger, Christian culture is in danger of a, an overswing. <laughs> We're not fundamentalists anymore. We're not hung up like that. And we can flaunt and parade it. So, yeah, there's the legalistic teetotalism of yesteryear, along with some good reasons, and we shouldn't presume to know why everyone's abstaining. But there are Christians, and even some pastors today, who seem to boast of being like a beer connoisseur. There are also Christians who are certainly not hung up on alcohol. That's, not, that's definitely not the issue. But they also might not be bothered enough about being hungover. That's a problem, okay? So the Bible's very clear. We shouldn't toy with drunkenness. Do not get drunk with wine for that's dissipation, right? So as a result, these, <laughs> maybe the pun is intended, not sober enough Christians can continue to give alcohol a bad name to the weaker brothers or the people that abstain. Let's, let's say they're the people that abstain. Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? No, it shouldn't be that way. Those who do drink in moderation ought to do it in such a way that it wouldn't give fuel to the fire to those who abstain. You see? Because it's not being abused. So if you do drink in moderation, be careful not to get too comfortable and give anyone a reason to condemn something that was given by God to gladden, not fog, the heart of man. Read Psalm 104. It's given to gladden the heart of man, wine. So what do we do when, with these disagreements? We welcome without judging or despising. We resolve in love not to be a stumbling block. We next pursue peace and build up. 
verse 19 of chapter 14. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Again, gospel culture. This is what God through Christ pursued and pursues with us. We've got to keep going. We, if we are strong, bear with the failings of the weak. 15.1. Do you see that? In 15.1, the obligation word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, which is an echo of the call to love. If, if you were reading along in Romans, you would know that in 13.8, it says we owe, it says, it says owe no one anything except to love each other. That's, what, that's the only thing you are obligated to others for, is to love them. <laughs> Same word, actually, in, in Greek is the obligation word in 13.8. So once again, gospel culture is bearing with the failings of the weak in love. Living out this obligation to love others in everything. And then, letter F, we should seek to please our neighbor, our brother, our sister, for his or her good, to build him up, which again is another way of saying walk in love. 15.2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Gospel culture, once again, this is what Christ did. This is why it's so important. This is how we make the gospel visible. This is how the church displays the beauty of Christ. That's why it's so important, okay? Which is the next point, and we can just run through these quickly. Uh, some of it's just by way of reminder. If you look in 14.3 and 15.7, why is it so important? Because God has welcomed us. That's what's at stake. We make that visible. We show that off. We display that in the way that we welcome one another. Why is this so important? Because God alone is the master and judge, 14.4. And then again in verses 10 to 12. Why is this so important? Because the kingdom is so much bigger than just eating and drinking. Come on, we don't want to fixate on those things. Those are small in comparison to the kingdom. We want to seek first the kingdom. 14.17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's so easy for an individual or church to fixate on, be consumed by, more interested in secondary and third-level issues than first-level ultimate issues. And then you get all these idiosyncratic subcultures inside the church. And then you get new people coming in, and they feel like, oh, I don't do this with my schooling, and so I feel like I'm on the outside. Oh, I don't do this with this other thing, and so therefore I feel like I'm on the outside. Or, oh, I don't do this. No, 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 no. Important. Let's work them through, have our opinions, but we welcome one another. We're focused on seeking first the kingdom. That's what it's all about. What really matters is the gospel because, fourthly there under number four, or letter D under number four, because we are eternally grateful that Jesus did not please himself, <laughs> but came and lived and suffered and died for us. 15.3. Just, just think of what he left in heaven to save us. And then just think of the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of wrath pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. I'm not here to please myself, but as you will. I want to love these people to the utmost so that they can be reconciled to us and enjoy our loving hospitality forever. So why is this so important? Because 
Letter E, it's all about and all for the glory of God. This is a great summary of the whole thing. 15.7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. <laughs> Gospel, culture. Why? For the glory of God. That's why it's so important. You know, we can distance ourselves and despise one another, just even subtly be annoyed by one another over such petty things. It happens so much. We've got to fight it. We've got to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. That's how we cultivate a gospel culture. So, I have a few points of practical counsel, (laughs) and I'm going to hit them quick. And then we'll do just a little bitty community discussion, okay? So, how do we do this? What, what, What do we take away here? I want to come back again to keep the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing. Individually and in church culture. What are you, individually, what are you most passionate about? What are you really passionate about? Really in the truly genuine sense of really. Are you really most passionate about the gospel? Or is it that little third-level issue that you just love. Because, see, if we assume the gospel and we really focus our time and energy on the third-level things, that's just what's going to be most important to us. And, yes, it's going to impact our unity. Because we're not always going to be unified on these third-level things. But if we think most of all about our sin before this holy judge God who, I'm going to stand before his judgment seat. He has forgiven me infinite debt. He has, there's no condemnation now. This is huge. This is huge for me. This is everything for me. It's going to kill the little petty, judging, despising things that happen on a horizontal level. If we are mostly celebrating the gospel, if that's where our affection and our passion is locked, then if somebody disagrees with us on the third level things, it's just not going to affect us as much as long as we're on the same page on the first level things. Third level issues so often eclipse first and second level issues and there's so much fracturing and judgment and despising that results. Two more, and this is not all about alcohol, but I I just think this is where it usually goes. And let me just say, as a test case, on alcohol, where we differ in our church family and where we have people who have had abuse in their past, and, and you know what? We don't want to encourage them or flaunt our liberty in front of them Think twice before you post pics of your beer on Instagram or Facebook or wherever of freedoms that could be unhelpful to a brother or sister. Again, the public nature of that, we need to think through that for the sake of love. Or if you're hosting a large gathering, think carefully about who's attending and whether you should pass on offering alcohol or just the way you offer it is very careful. You're having a wedding, okay? And I'm not saying don't ever 
have champagne for the toast, okay? I'm just saying these principles should guide all these decisions. And, and so if, if, we, if we hear that and we think, oh, that kind of sense is like annoying. Like, why do I have to like, get over it? That's exactly the mentality that this text is checking in our hearts. Okay, and then finally, the last thing, the place of maturity that this text and others, like 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, we read, Brett read from 1 Corinthians 9, all things to all people. The place of maturity is not, being, not simply just being able to welcome other people, but being flexible to minister to all kinds of people, willing to yield freedoms for the good of others. So for instance, Alex and Betsy gladly yielding up their freedom to eat pork and drink alcohol to reach Indonesian Muslims. Okay? Might be different when they come home, right? Or if they go on vacation, maybe they'll have some bacon on their eggs or whatever. And how about this? If we really want to produce people like that that are flexible, we have to be people like that that are flexible. Wouldn't you love to see a strict Hindu get converted and then move to Texas where beef, it's what's for dinner? Can you imagine a Hindu that's a missionary to Texas? That's awesome. That would be the gospel. That's Paul. To the Jews I became as a Jew. What? Paul, you are a Jew. I'm so free. My identity is so locked up in Jesus that I, I'm, I can be flexible in any culture. All right, so we have no time for a community discussion. Sorry. Um, but here's what I was thinking for the community discussion. I mean, obviously, this is like Pandora's box, you know, and you open this thing up and you can have all these questions. So that's, that's fair. Like, my door's open. You can call or write or whatever. We can talk through these things. But your community groups... If yours meets this afternoon, you're going to be talking through some of this stuff. Um, one of the things that I was going to encourage us to do in, the, in this time is maybe who needs to confess? Who needs to confess the kind of despising and judgmental disposition or orientation that this text condemns and challenges? And you know what? Maybe I'll just start. <laughs> So this was really good for me because I came from a background, you know, we couldn't, couldn't play sports on Sunday, at least at one point, and wearing shorts. And, you know, you have like some of that kind of stuff. Like I have some of that in my background. And, man, I just realized in the past, and, and there's vestiges still that can be there, guilty on so many levels. I have looked down on certain kinds of homeschoolers. I love homeschoolers. I said certain kinds, Okay. I've rolled my eyes at Easter lovers. It's Resurrection Sunday. You know, like, okay. I have whatevered vegetarians. I've been judgmental of people that are too Western in their medical views and people that are too Eastern, as if I'm the reference point of the medical world. look down on fundamentalists and not even knowing what they're, okay, I mean, I could just go on and on, but I guess what I'm saying is, is there some stuff that you need to 
own and confess the Lord, repent of, and say, Lord, help me to contribute, like help me to really imbibe Romans 14 and 15. And, and just be unbegrudgingly let that shape how I relate to all my brothers and sisters. And do it at Bethel. And you know what? While you're at it, do it for all these faithful gospel churches in the Delmarva region because we're all on the same team. So um, I'm going to just dismiss us with the... Uh, the prayer that's embedded in our passage. So if you want to stand, um, I hope that your heart says a hearty amen to this prayer and will be dismissed. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that grace be with us as we go. Go in peace. Dismissed.